And I think the food that you eat, the walks that you take, the meditation spots that you find, the sounds of the birds, the dew on the grass, all of those things start to burn into your sense of self within an environment. They minimise you, but they enhance you. And I think we need to be minimised as humans. We need to see things through the lens of country and earth. But I think if you really let go of control and really lean into what the environment is telling you and what you could be taught by that, not only will you be humbled, but you will also be led to make decisions differently, interact differently, engage in a way that isn't apathetic and that is alive. Welcome, beautiful soul, to the Weaving the Wild podcast. In this space, we are reclaiming and remembering the wildish wisdom and knowledge that lies deep within our bones and reconnecting to those parts of ourselves that are both ancient and familiar. We talk about it all, awakening our collective wildness and dropping back into our bodies, honoring our cyclical rhythms, connecting to our roots, embracing our intuitive nature and living embodied within the feminine. I'm Rachel Hodgins and I'm honoured to be walking this path beside you. Let's dive in. Jade Miles is the founder of Future Steading, a movement, outlook and practical guide to living like tomorrow matters. Through her work as an author, speaker and podcast host, she shares with others how to build your seasonal rhythm, expand your earth skills and live your life in deep care and respect for the earth. Together with her husband, Charlie, Jade also devotedly runs Black Barn Farm, an intentionally slow orchard and nursery in northeast Victoria. The farm is deeply entrenched in community, regenerative practices and permaculture. And throughout the year, they offer workshops, events, tours and pick your own produce days, all with the hope to get people more engaged and connected to the food that we eat and the food systems that it all comes from. I came across Jade's amazing book, Future Studying, a little over a year ago and just fell head over heels for the way that she speaks and understands the world and the land. Jade is somebody who truly walks her talk, who is deeply embodied and entrenched in her values and her commitment to the earth, to people, to community and to living like tomorrow matters. And she does so in an incredibly practical and tangible way, which is why I was so excited to have her on the podcast. In this episode, we talk about some of the biggest moments that paved Jade's path in the work that she does today, from being raised around permaculture to becoming a mother to the personal and collective toll of the Black Summer bushfires of 2019 and 2020. We talk about what future steading is where it came from and why she felt so driven to share it with others. We talk a lot about seasonal living and how it really supports us, how Jade experiences it firsthand, living with her hands in the dirt on the farm, including some of the the shifts and the rituals and celebrations and the details that she's attuned to that really kind of announce the changing seasons for her in her life. 
Jade also shares the six seasons that she follows throughout the year. And I love this so much. We talk about how this these six seasons really align with the wheel of the year that we talk a lot about on this podcast, more so than, you know, our, our quote unquote normal four seasons that we, we generally follow. We talk about placemaking and why this is deeply healing and important in our ability to connect with the world, with the land, and to live in a way that really values tomorrow. Jade shares such beautiful wisdom around the importance of mutual obligation in our world, as well as the call for being more open source with our skills and our knowledge, not gatekeeping or withholding or living, you know, such isolated and individualized lives. We talk then about the importance of community in a world that's built on systems that are unsustainable, especially the likes of our food systems and food sovereignty. We need each other and we need to know how to practice and build community. And that's something that I think scares a lot of people. And Jade shares her thoughts and her experience around this, as well as how to start, especially for those of us who do feel uncomfortable or afraid or introverted. This is such an important conversation to be having. So I really invite you to stick around to the end for this. And finally, we talk about where to start and how to start if you feel called to grow your own food in any way, shape or form. This conversation is full. It's really full to the brim. We cover a lot of ground. I actually feel like this is one that you might like to come back to for a second listen at some point. I can guarantee you'll pick up even more the second time around. As you're listening, be sure to screenshot and share this episode to spread the word and the incredible wisdom that Jade shares. Jade is at Black Barn Farm. That's black underscore barn underscore farm. And I am at the Rachel Hodgins. You'll find the links for that in the show notes. You can also leave a rating and a review for the show if you enjoy it on Apple Podcasts. In fact, if you do, make sure you screenshot it and email it to me and I will send you back a free meditation as a big thank you gift. As always, anything that we mention in this episode will be linked in the show notes. That's where you'll find links to Jade's work, her book, her podcast, etc. Anything that we mention, any books and resources we mention throughout our conversation. And you'll find more ways to connect with me as well. You can grab my free guide and jump on my email list. You can find me over on Instagram. You can work with me one-on-one or jump inside my monthly membership cosmic weavings where you can immerse yourself deeper into the cosmic energies and earthly rhythms each month so if you want to live by the moon the seasons the subtle and not so subtle shifts that weave within you and all around you you can find more information about that and everything else in the show notes and now without further ado let's bring on jade miles so welcome, Jade. It is such a pleasure to have you on the Weaving the Wild podcast today. Thank you. It's beautiful to be here. I would love, love to begin. I know you've kind of shared that like the the way that's led you to to the work you do and the, the life you live now has kind of just always been how you live. But I would love to hear like what's really contributed to your journey? Like what has led you to like such a passion within the work that you do today? Um, I think, as you say, it's always been part of the way I, I've lived. I was fortunate enough to grow up with pretty alternative thinking, critical thinking folks. 
And so that sowed some really deep, not only um, inspiration for the way I wanted to live my own life, but also some really practical skills that were able to transcend the punkiness of teenage years that took me away from it altogether, but spat me back pretty solidly in my late teens. Um, and so I guess that has always been there, but there, there were definitely a few critical points in time. When we were 21, my then boyfriend, now husband, I bought a little plot of land in Stanley, which is the plateau that we still live on, a different house, but still there. And we were surrounded by multi-generational orchardists. And even in the first three or four years that we were there, we watched uh, these multi-generation farms get pushed out or all of their trees get pushed out. And we continued to ask why and receive almost the same answers from everybody. There's no money in small-scale family-owned orcharding. Our food system is a commodity market where we are price takers and there's no capacity for us to change our growing practices because there's no, no money in it. And the next generation aren't interested, so there's no succession plan. And so that really, I guess, sowed the first seed that sat in on top of a permaculture-based childhood for me to start questioning what our food system looks like. And it wasn't just me questioning. I was really fortunate to have a partner that was equally as curious about it and wanting to mm. understand, you know, what we could do with it. And so that sowed the seed. It started a slow journey of us growing as much food as we possibly could and understanding what our role in our community looked like in terms of reframing our food system. But then with with you know so many people have this I know when I ask the question on my pod most most women say my children having children was definitely a catalyst that gets you to the point where you start to challenge and question more and you lean into knowing and listening to your body and your children's bodies and needs and so that was pretty critical as well and then I guess the evolution of wanting to grow my own food and understanding food systems and um the further development of the, the local food co-op that we founded and the local food policy development that we were doing led to us farming and um, because we really wanted our hands in the dirt and we didn't just want to be looking at it from a policy level and a community development level, but we really, really wanted to be scaling up our homegrown food to a, a much bigger community scale permaculture enterprise. But really the reason future setting formed was because in the 1920-2020 summer, we had those catastrophic fires that everyone in the country would remember really well. And even though Charlie had been um, fighting fires for the better part of 15 years, it was probably the toughest firefighting season that we'd ever experienced personally as a family and I know so many others were in a similar position but I was standing down at the Chook House one night and it was blowing an absolute gale of that hot hot wind and he was maybe 20 days into doing 15 16 hour days and he was behaving a little strangely and I didn't know it at the time but a couple of days earlier he'd been caught in a burnover and sort of faced his own mortality survived obviously and thankfully um but, you know, it had really tipped him and my stress threshold was pretty high and the kids were pretty highly strung and I was managing a farm on my own and someone, I'd got to the point where people had been uh, saying or the general mainstream narrative had been moving in the direction of taking personal ownership for 
the way in which we live and how we influence decisions that are made. And I was feeling really buoyed by that. I was feeling buoyed by the idea that there was a galvanising of our, of our country and a coming together and an acknowledgement between our city and our country cousins to, to see that we actually had the capability to make change happen. But then there was this shift in narrative that started to say they need to fix it. And I thought, bloody hell, they being the government, sure, they need to change policy, but policy comes when there's enough of a push. And every single one of us has the capability every single day to make a series of decisions. And the outcome of those decisions is either um, degenerative, sustainable or regenerative. And really, they are tiny, tiny, tiny things. They don't have to cost money. They don't have to take time. But they do take conscious and intentional thinking. And I thought the problem is that people are so busy and so um, caught in the paradigm of endless growth that it's and just surviving and, you know, managing the complexities of the increased pressure with mental health issues and, um, you know, extended cost of living and all of those other things that make life really complicated that, one, I need to reframe what my life looks like so that I can start to really walk the talk more solidly. But two, I need to share any knowledge that I've got and I need to encourage others to do the same so that we can develop this incredible pool of solidarity and, and shared system-changing knowledge that allow all of us on a daily basis to make small but incremental and really powerful uh, decisions and lifestyle changes. So mm -hmm. that's a very long-winded way of saying that future setting was developed because I felt like it was something that everybody needed to be able to do everybody needed to find joy in it and it needed to be accessible no matter where you're at in your journey in your knowledge base or where you live yeah yeah it's so interesting because I, I meant to ask as well just before I, <laughs> I go off on a little tangent there but I meant to ask what is your star sign I'd be really interested to know in, in relation, like having heard all of that now. Yeah, I'm right on the cusp. So mm -hmm. I am a Leo Virgo. I was born at half past midnight on the 24th of August. So my husband says, great, you're a dominating perfectionist. So, I'm, <laughs> I, so I am quite oscillating in my personality. I can be really particular and really highly ordered and um, fairly purist in my thinking, but I can equally be quite gregarious and quite... Um, uh, easily capable of of leading and pushing sort of bigger mm. movements so yeah. it's a really complicated dynamic my star sign if you lean into that and believe any of it I love it because I hear um like Leo heart like you have heart and Virgo the healer the earthy healer so it's like in a very tangible way so it's like yes dominating uh, perfectionist but also like big hearted like earthy healing like that's amazing so but um that is a much better description I'm gonna <laughs> happily own that <laughs> take that one with you um what I was going to say though and what I, I really love and I think that actually does speak to it perfectly but is like these for want of a better word initiations and I mean birth is an initiation but these moments that you've really witnessed firsthand the repercussions as well of a paradigm like like ours that we live in um and it would be very like you know small scale farming being pushed out no money 
the devastating fires and it'd be very easy to just slip into despair and hopelessness and helplessness and I'm sure there were times when you did. I think apathy is the thing that plays out most of all yeah and I think that's because life is full and people don't have capacity to take on other issues that don't immediately impact them and they don't immediately impact them because we still have you know a food system that for the most part is cost effective and convenient and so it enables Mm -hmm. apathy because you know it's not pressing it was pressing during COVID and we all saw what that looked like and the way Mm -hmm. in which we behaved but you know it is it is easy to be apathetic about where our food comes from but um you know we all eat three times a day and without the ability to really connect and understand and support the food system that we actually want to see play out then we sit in a really precarious position mm-hmm. it's not a it's not a it's not to be taken for granted it's not a gimme that we will always have access to food yeah so it's interesting then um I suppose I'm going to ask you what is future studying like um can you kind of dive into that a little bit for us for those who haven't you know read your book and you know follow the podcast but future studying is so hopeful and it's so it's not just hopeful it's connected it's it's the means of tapping in um and and tuning in and and really bringing that weaving it into our lives in a practical way but can you tell us then what is future studying and how has it been the the natural kind of response and result of these experiences that have led you here okay um it I'm glad to hear you think it's hopeful that's great sometimes I feel like I take it down a much more dire path but for the most part it was designed to be hopeful quite intentionally um it is obviously steeped in homesteading but that's not really something that we associate with here in Australia. And I very intentionally wanted it to be an Australian concept, even though, you know, I've done an American book tour and it's sold into Germany and it's sold into lots of other parts of the world. It, it has a very quintessential Australian flavour to it. Um, yeah. It is about living like tomorrow matters every single day and all the little tiny things that we do that when they come together as the sum of the parts, they create a life that considers the seven generations in front of us and leans on the knowledge that's been shared by the seven generations before us. And so um, it's sort of came about because of my, my permi childhood and um the sense, this sort of exasperation that I wanted everybody to understand and experience what permaculture looks like and could be if it was scaled out and up. And um, I just felt the feedback I got from people was that permaculture is a little bit misunderstood. You know, it is absolutely a framework for how to live your life so that we create a permanent culture. But I think there was this sort of general consensus that people thought it was a gardening approach, approach to gardening. I was like, ah. Oh, we need to change that. So really, I've and my background is marketing, so really I kind of took permaculture and I took homesteading and I bolted two words together that was about creating a steady future but sort of lent on some of the principles and, and concepts that the other two um, philosophies had already developed. Um, but it was really intentionally designed to be practical and joyful and accessible so that even if you didn't live on sprawling acres because that's not everyone's reality and even if they wanted it to be it wouldn't be practical for it for it to be um you know even if it's a pot of mint on your kitchen bench that you're doing a daily ritual cup of tea with it needed to be something that people felt they could pick up and they could start one thing with today right in their own backyard 
there's a few parts within your book that I like really really love like it's in I love the the format in in general of the seasons um and I love you you know I'm going to quote you here you said in your book seasons are mother nature's way of prompting us to align our actions with the forces that create our world um that's like that's just like multi-layered as it is but I love the fact that you shared six seasons and you know as opposed to the four that we're very accustomed to um and like even growing up in like regional victoria myself i related just very clearly to these six seasons that you um you shared i love the way that it even kind of cracks open your perspective of even just the, the lens in which you look at nature and your environment we're so used to just seeing things in a very kind of spoon-fed kind of way without actually questioning and engaging with what we're seeing and what we're experiencing ourselves. Um, but yeah, I would love, I'd love for you to share the six seasons to begin with. And I suppose like how they align, how they speak to your experience. Can you make this a little bit more, you know, tangible for us? Like how do these six seasons, you know, relate to living on the land even that, you know, you live with the farm? Mm-hmm. I can. So um, we're one of the only cultures that only has four seasons. Lots of lots of indigenous cultures the world over have, you know, up to fourteen seasons. Um, for us here in northeast Victoria, and really for many people in temperate climates, um, six seasons is far more realistic than four. And I think. If you're deeply engaged with it and you're really observing it and you're connected to it in lots of different ways, especially when you're growing food, you really are critically aware of what those seasons are. There's not a date on a calendar that absolutely goes out the window. It's definitely a, a intuitive feel that tells you that we're starting to move. Even last night I said to my husband, oh, I feel like the, we're just moving away from uh, deep uh, high heat and moving into harvest and that's not only because I'm picking tomatoes and cucumbers on a daily basis now it's because you know the evenings are cooler and there's a different smell in the air and the light has changed just a little bit so I feel like we're moving to harvest which then leads towards the turning and so I developed the six seasons based around largely my growing and ritual based yeah um for us, it looks like deep winter, which is a, a deep time of rest and hibernation and planning and reflection. And I'm really bad at this time of year. I've resented it my entire life. Um, you, you know, it really mimics the life stages, really. And I think it's probably timely as I move out of, you know, you move from that maiden a mother maiden phase into mother phase my children are now getting much bigger and I'm starting to move into that sort of maga phase where I need to be really comfortable with what autumn the autumn phase of my life looks like mm -hmm. and um yeah I'm hoping that that gives me a good stead to be comfortable with the deep winter period but mm -hmm. anyway we start in the the reflection time the hibernation healing quiet um, there's no noise really intentionally quiet um, and then we move into the awakening it's that it's a beautiful time of year the awakening I'm really impatient when the awakening is um, unfolding where we are it's a really slow period for us still 
in some parts of Australia, that would be a much faster and much shorter period. But it's that window between that deep, deep hibernation time and the time where suddenly all the leaves are tumbling out of the, the branches and, um, you know, just growing towards the sky as fast as they can. And in my mind, that's called the alive season, season of alive. Uh, then you move into high heat. High heat can be quite a gentle time, but it's also a very social time. The days are really long. You know, the summer solstice is at play. There's lots of swimming, there's lots of activity, lots of different people. Um, then you move into harvest, which I actually find um, a little bit stressful because we grow a lot of food and you're still kind of on the high, the social high of lots of people and lots of activities and lots of fireside dinners. And But, but you have just got this massive food coming out of the paddock and out of the veggie garden and sitting in vessels and pots and tubs of all varieties on your kitchen floor screaming pickle me or stew me or preserve me in some way shape or form but don't let me go to waste because I am your winter food um so I find that a bit stressful uh, my husband spends his life saying it is okay to give it to the chickens and return it in eggs or give it to the compost and return it in beautiful soil but I'm not that patient with that um and then we move into the turning which if it wasn't followed by hibernation which always makes me a bit fancy I would find the most beautiful time of the year mm. it feels like the twilight day I don't know if your days are broken into different areas like mine are but um the turning is beautiful the big noisy cacophonous social gatherings at our lake or at our river or these potluck dinners really dwindle back to just three or four people and we might just do fresh big corn over an open fire outside or uh, you know we do much slower walks a little bit earlier in the evening rather than quite late at night and we start doing more inside fires at Sweetie Greens. It's a beautiful time of year and all that beautiful glorious colour that comes out of the trees can be used for you know, decorating the table at dinner time, um, making pressed flower cards or you know, Easter-based nests <coughs> that we do a lot of. Um, so the seasons really for us are largely around drinking and the rituals that we undertake. And I try and do a major ritual in each season so that there's really these solid exclamation marks that mark the year and keep us all being pulled through. But then sometimes it's just the little tiny ones, what's fresh and what's picking and what do we eat at this time of year and what are we pickling at this time of year or, um, you know, what herbs are, are being added to the salad or what does the middle of the table look like when the kids were a bit little, they haven't done it for a little while, but when the kids were a bit little, we used to encourage them to go and fill baskets. They would set the table in the middle and it would just bring a bit of outside in and we always have a family meal together. So, yeah, we also host um, on-farm volunteers and we don't do that over the Christmas period and we don't do it over the depths of winter. And so you get into these beautiful but really busy and productive periods in those sort of spring and autumn periods where there's lots mm. of people on farm and lots of activity mm. I love the way um I, I talk about you know like, like many the wheel of the year and my background is Celtic so I, I connect ancestrally to the Celtic um traditions as well but the way that you speak to these six seasons still correspond it's just another way of of um, speaking of and and tuning into 
um, these other names and, and phrases that we might hear. Like I hear the season of alive and awakening is very like that's it's in bulk and leading into the equinox and um, you know, high heat into Beltane and, and the solstice, as you said. But I also love the way that you kind of um like I, I the way I really see and understand the cyclical nature of the seasons is we we picture like something like summer to be the peak and we we speak about that as like the peak of energy and yet I I also find that it's spring and autumn that are the transitionary seasons that have the most busyness or the most kind of happening I suppose um and yeah the the solstice is either side winter and summer are kind of um more like they're they're a holding energy like they're like the uh, what's the word yeah, that's a beautiful way of explaining them that's exactly what they mean hmm. I yeah I, I really really appreciate the way that you as I said it's just like it's just cracking open a different way of speaking with tuning in and as you said it's a bit more of an Aussie way maybe but I feel like anyone can tune into to these seasons as you're speaking to them and really relate um, and I love as you're talking the way like the details in which you you really connect to and speak to within the seasons you, you know you're talking about um the turning or we're in the harvest at the moment and the turning is coming and you can tell by the scent in the air and the change in you know temperature and um, and light the way light filters in my yard is something that I always notice and even for me recently I'm like looking up and I've gone the the leaves are starting to to fall like as in some of our trees are already starting to shed it's like not even end of Feb. well end of February now as we're talking but I'm like this doesn't seem right and yet I'm seeing it <laughs> so I love the way that you pick up on the details and it's something as well that kind of ties into the next question that I was really excited to ask you because I'd love to talk to you about placemaking um, and this is something I've heard you speak to before and it's a thread I'm I'm also very passionate about. I think it's um, something that's very absent from mm. kind of a, a lot of conversations that, that we hold. It's subtle. It's not like quite as overt as we're used to um, focusing on. It's a subtle attunement to our environment, um, but it holds just really deep medicine to know a place, to know your place and establish roots there. And I, I want to pull a line. I think I heard you say this in a podcast. Sure, quite, quite you. <laughs> <laughs> you were talking about, I think it was, in fact, I might, I might pop this episode into um, the show notes because I'm pretty sure the episode was on your Future Setting podcast about placemaking in, in some way, shape or form. And you were talking about, about your relationship and your understanding of what placemaking is. And you said this line and I just got like shivers in my body because I'm like, yeah, I know, I know that. You said it's knowing the length of the shadows of particular trees. And for some people that might be like, all right. <laughs> but I think that there's, I, I would love to hear you speak, speak to placemaking. What, what do you mean when you say it's knowing that the length of of shadows in particular trees as well as like what else is is place making but I I'd love to hear you kind of like uh, sort of branch out on that a little bit because I think there's so much medicine within that I think this is 
um, something that, as you say, is subtle. It's incredibly nuanced. It's deeply personal. And I think as a culture, we're really just beginning to, to turn back to this and lean on what has been um, deeply understood by Indigenous cultures forever. And here in Australia, you know, we can't even begin to understand what placemaking looks like and what a true understanding of country looks like. Yet I am a fifth-generation Australian and, you know, I'm a white chick whose roots are based in, um, in the UK. And yet my connection to place is still enough to give me goosebumps and make me emotional and make my decisions. I think in my, in my book, I've said that our place is our foundation. And it's true. When I was talking about this part of the book to the publisher, she said, oh, is that just making the home beautiful? And like, no, 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 that would be, you know, designing but there is a component of it that still has a that still has a role, and that's that you are doing things with intention. I think, um, you know, placemaking influences the decisions that we make and how we interact with others and the relationships that we have, not only with the human, the animals, and um, the people, but also the seasons and the earth and the sensorial experiences that are offered, and it holds you it holds you you know we can't control everything and we can't regulate our own impact but it is so much more than things it's a deep remembering and it's sort of evolutionary and I think the food that you eat the um, walks that you take the meditation spots that you find the sounds of the birds, the dew on the grass, all of those things start to burn into your sense of self within an environment. They minimise you, but they enhance you. And I think there's sort of a two-pronged component to that. We need to be minimised as humans. We need to see things through the lens of country and earth. Well, so it's not always being driven by the lens of the human or the need of the human. I think you make decisions differently when you do that. But I think if you really let go of control and really lean into what the environment is telling you and what you could be taught by that, not only will you be humbled, but you will also be led to make decisions differently, interact differently and um, engage in a way that isn't apathetic and that is alive and that is not always earnest but also joyful in equal measure. So I think, I don't know if I'm talking in riddles or if I'm making sense, but I think, um, you know, you can go, I had a beautiful girlfriend turn up last night. I haven't seen her for five years. We've known her for 25 years. Her and her husband and her kids turned up last night and they've, they left Victoria a number of years ago. They moved to New South Wales and she said, we drove through the border and instantly we all had a desire to look out the window and the light felt different and the energy of the place felt different and we were still on a road and still in a car but we started to understand the landscape and we started to feel connected and familiarity and 
Mm. Um, we started to feel like this was our place. There was an intuitive telltale sign that this is where we actually belong. And I just feel so comfortable. So I think mm. all of us have intuitive places that we belong. We can all, of course, make the best of a situation in most situations that we find ourselves in. But um, I think when you start to really stop, really observe, really interact and engage and start to build repetitive rituals that connect with the natural world, you start to make your place. It's so much more than a mark on a map. It is mm. where you deeply belong. And you can belong in multiple places. I definitely do. I belong in two places and that has that racked me for a long time. But now I definitely that we belong here in Did that answer your question? Yes, absolutely. And I think I think um, I talk a lot about weaving yourself back into the web, the web of the world, this wild, animate earth. And what I hear you saying as well is like there's um, there's a reciprocity, yeah. but it's also like it's in when you you know shared like making yourself small and minimizing yourself in a way it also it brings you into relationship and then you also know your place and I say place with a capital P like not as in like your you know hierarchical but like put you in your place but you you learn and you remember your place and then when you do so you can remember or you can understand or begin to make decisions in a way that's reciprocal and in a way that's actually engaged with the world around you. And I think that's really beautiful in terms of, I, I think there's a tendency, I feel like you've spoken to this in the past, but there's a tendency um, to assume that if you want to connect to the world, <laughs> to nature, or to appreciate this sort of lifestyle, you need to be off living on a homestead or something like that. And the majority of us don't. Most of us live in an urban environment. And I think much of what you speak to, especially around this concept of placemaking, is becoming intimate with where you are and understanding that the world doesn't stop, nature doesn't stop, you know, at the edge of a city, for example, and life is happening, life is there to be engaged with wherever you are. And so if I draw back even on that line of, you know, knowing the length of sh shadows that certain trees cast, it's about becoming intimate with the the nuances and the like what is present in your environment in your neighborhood if you're walking through you know even a city streetscape every single day do you notice the little bird nest up in in the the tree do you say hello each day do you notice the way that wind gusts down a certain alleyway and, and meets you as you as you walk each time and really finding your place like how you fit in and how the world kind of moves around you and meets you. Um, there's just like this, as you said, this subtle, it's it's subtle, it's deeply personal, and it's something that you only can begin to weave when you just start actually tuning in and, and inquiring about what's around you. Um, but, yeah, I just think, that, yeah, the deepest, deepest um, reweaving, I suppose, it happens. Um, but in it, we start to appreciate and, and ch change, I suppose, impact and, and influence the decisions we make, which is what future studying is. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah. And it it definitely happens in the skeleton of your home. You know, the, the, the yeah. home is sort of the framework to begin 
is because it's safe and um, it's slow and it's mm. really personal and you can start to make the tiniest little changes and observations right where you are from whatever mm. seat it is you're sitting in right now. Love that. I'd love to, to ask as well, so a huge theme in, in the book and also your podcast is community. Yeah. And it's something that I think so many of us, and it's not just, you know, our fault. It's a bit of a, you know, result of the world that we live in. Industrialization. Yep. Uh, yes. <laughs> um, all of those things. All those, you know, wonderful things. Um, but it's something we're not practiced in. We're very unpracticed in community in this day and age in a lot of ways and and being able to kind of when I say that like reaching out and connecting with those around us really establishing connections and that reciprocity you know that we're talking about even um and I I would just love to hear you speak to that I suppose like I'd love to hear or kind of learn your experience of community and maybe even any tips that you you might have about actually just like looking outside our front door and kind of creating or weaving ourselves back into community in some way yeah yeah and look the reason we don't have community the way we used to is because we live in a really um financially fat society where the vast majority of us have four walls around us and four and mm -hmm. fence um fence walls around us that allow us to walk in and shut the door and shut the complexity of humans out we also probably have enough money in our bank account the majority of us to you know pay the bill and make something black and white it doesn't require complex conversation with another mm. human that could potentially be ambiguous and, and misconstrued it, it, it allows us to make things very black and white and that's great while we have an abundance in our society but you know the reality is that as things start to unfold that abundance won't be you know forever available and so we need to really really learn how to engage in community and there's two parts to this the exciting part is that we have done this since the beginning of time and it's only this tiny 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 blip at the very end of humanity that we're all existing in right now where we haven't had to work in an environment of mutual obligation and reciprocity so we do have this knowledge somewhere deep in our bones the bad part about it is that um, for at least the last five or six generations, we haven't had to do it. And so there is a, actually no lived experience in this. It is without doubt the single hardest thing that I've ever done, but probably without doubt the single most rewarding thing I've ever done to really engage with community. And I think it doesn't have to be all or nothing and it doesn't have to be all the time. Um, I grew up in an environment where my dad who was um so my whole family still live in the same region in Gippsland and that's both sides of my family and there are five generations currently alive still and so and there's a million of us and so um <laughs> I have always had this knowledge that it wouldn't matter what I did someone within my family that was pretty quick to slap my wrist or my bum would be around to find out if I did anything wrong so mutual obligation has always been really really high on my conscientiousness I've always mm -hmm. known that I'd be caught if I did something wrong not everybody has that of course and um, that can be a really liberating thing for people but it can also be you know a missed opportunity but you know that is a foundation has always led me to think more broadly than just me 
because we are only as strong as the community that we're in and we're only one of the sum of the parts. And so that's amazing. That and that enables, I'm really visual, that enables me to imagine all of these tiny dots or circles on a page. And if we really, really make the community that we're part of just the most amazing part of the world that it could possibly be and really connect and commit to localization. And everybody else is doing exactly the same thing. They're really looking after what's going on in their own backyard and supporting all of the initiatives that happen in their own backyard. It means that one bubble on the page bumps into the next bubble on the page and suddenly have all these incredible communities that are learning from one another, that are springboarding from one another, that are openly sharing their knowledge and their learnings of the things that work or don't work. Um, you know, we can be sharing food, we can be sharing ideas, we can be we can be really engaging in a place that makes most sense to us. So our gut from our gut biome right through to the microclimates, right, you know, through to local council or whatever it might be. Um, and I think you know, some what I'm talking about now horrifies some people. I know when I'm out talking, people say, we really need to learn how to re-engage with community, but the idea of doing that absolutely makes me feel sick to my gut. I can't possibly do that I'm really introverted and it's just not my thing and I say okay so don't be public about it don't be you don't need to be standing on a podium and chatting from the rooftops and in the paper every other week or doing radio interviews or participating in local council but do join your local food co-op and do join your local um, community garden and do with a really small group of close trusted friends host um, food swaps or or clothing swaps do go to local theatre if there's a small amateur theatre company putting a show on go to that support it get out and actually participate actively and get involved and if there is a localized option available do that if there's a local school go there don't send your kids off the hill 40 minutes away to better school because it's got a better reputation actually invest in the one that you belong to and that you have available to you or they just won't be there you know our system is broken in so many ways. We have all these abstractions um, with our financial system and our education system and our medical system. And, you know, all of these systems that remove us from the ability to access and engage in the most important thing, which is right in our backyard, but they are the systems. And so whatever you've got in your own backyard, even if the bigger system is broken, engage in it, get active in it. It could be tiny. It could be really quiet, but it could be not. Just be aware and awake and engage. Hmm. I love that. And like you said, like for some of us, like me included, like it's not, I think that it's overly difficult for me to engage with the world. And yet we're just very unpracticed in like the doing, like to get ourselves out, out the door essentially. Um, and yet, also what I'm kind of hearing like as you, you're speaking is like what's available to for you to receive from others and like remembering that that's what this whole thing called life is about in so many ways is contributing like you contributing what you have to give but also when everyone is doing that you have so much at your fingertips to receive from others as they're doing the same um, and I think there's a, there's a piece there around just like you were kind of touching on as well earlier around you know where we live such individualized 
isolated lives. It's the world, like it's this whole world is about individualism, right? These days. Um, And even in that, like, I think something else that kind of comes through is like this idea of when we want to, how do I say this? Like when we're feeling like called to like reclaim, I don't know, our lives, the old ways and, you know, like fuck the system sort of thing um, that we need to do it alone and independently. Like the idea even of like homesteading is like, oh, I'm going to buy a plot of land and I'm going to. People say that all the time. You don't need to be self-sufficient, be community sufficient. I love that. I love that because that's that's something that kind of landed for me recently as well was this whole concept of like, I don't think it's that possible for me to like, buy a plot of land and just literally do everything ourselves just two of us but the idea is like when I really look back really look back to you know my my ancestors you know it wasn't probably just that they were doing every single thing themselves and they all lived on their own little plot of land they had communal you know agriculture they all harvested they all like shared the the resources and they you know worked together in that way and so I think there's a piece there to remember as well, where it's like, if you're wanting to reclaim or to change, change the way in quotation marks, you're not, you don't have to do it yourself and you probably won't do it yourself. You're going to need people. And it's not a long enough lifetime to learn <laughs> everything that you need to know to do all of the things. Mm. And also you, you're much, much stronger when you collaborate what's going on in your head with others, because, you know, there's this really healthy tension between your knowledge and someone else's knowledge and trying to be all things and also trying to give over. So remove competition from the equation and just go fully open source with your knowledge and share anything and everything and see what comes out of the washing machine that others contribute to. It's always much richer. It's much slower. It's much more complicated and it requires (laughs) much more, um, much more, what's the word, compromise. But actually you get a better outcome. Hmm. I love that. I love then to ask um, just finally before we go into like a little rapid rapid fire questions um, on a really tangible level and and note for those who are kind of feeling the call and I know even from my own perspective I am a complete amateur when it comes to gardening and (laughs) growing food but I love it and even anytime like I share things from my own garden my own little plot of land here um, in judge our own country I always get people messaging and, and asking about like how do I do this how should I start um, and I'm like mate I'm not I'm not the one to ask but I would love to hear from you Jay because you are the one to ask how would you um, suggest like just how to start getting your hands dirty basically for those listening who are super keen to kind of get growing in some way no matter where they are and could do with some practical suggestions and tips what what wisdom can you share with us um the first thing I would say is make sure that is what you want to do because there's lots of different ways to contribute to this evolving sphere of the way we live um so if growing is what you want to do and you don't have a plot of land when I was in the states I did a sidewalk talk and someone said well how do you do all this I haven't got I haven't got a balcony I haven't got a rooftop I haven't got a garden of my own I live in an apartment five stories up and someone else in the room said oh well I have a rooftop and I have a balcony and I don't want to grow I've got no interest in growing so why don't I give you my house key 
And why don't you start using my balcony and my rooftop and you can grow and we'll just share whatever it is you grow. So the very first thing I would say is, is that what you want to do? And if you do, then let's find a way forward. If it's not what you want to do, then let's find what it is that you do want to do. But um, it all comes down to people. I would say don't try and do it on your own because that's lonely, it's isolating. It's the old paradigm of individualism that means you don't have the ability to learn from anyone or feel a sense of solidarity with others. So find your people, find whatever it is that you want to be doing in your on-ramp that makes sense to you and find others who are doing it too and work out how you might share the skills that you've got or the mistakes that you make or, you know, if you're in the city and there's six of you and you've only got a balcony each, then all choose one thing each and get a couple of pots and grow those one thing, grow that one thing and then share them. Mm. If, you know, someone, um, if no one's got the capacity to grow but there is someone that's nearby that does a CSA food box, then find a way to volunteer some time to help them once or twice across the season, give them the extra set of hands that they need and contribute to the whole season. Rain, hail or shine, you'll get food and they'll get um they'll get the support that they need to feel confident that they can go ahead with the season. So it's really tiny things. And I think it doesn't need to be so big that people mm. get overwhelmed. Just start with one thing. Start with tomatoes in a pot. Start with, um, you know, don't start with brassicas because we all forget to water things in winter. Don't start with, you can start with garlic, but just start with one clove head and break it up into the eight cloves that and it'll give you eight and then next year you'll feel pretty stuffed with yourself and you'll use those eight to turn into 16 and you know then to 24 you know grow whatever it is slowly until you've got it bedded down into your daily rhythm and your daily rituals and your skill set um and do it with others don't do it alone only and there's no fun in doing it unless you're really really introverted and that's your absolute preference Find others because there's lots of people doing it too and learning and banging around making mistakes and then it makes all your mistakes and there'll be plenty feel pretty normal yeah I love that and even to go even like to be really really specific here for those who are like okay yeah but how do I find others <laughs> for those who are like oh what does that even mean like how if someone's really feeling called and they're they're not practiced, I suppose, in reaching out. What are some practical like routes that we might look look for or find those people? Yeah. Um, well, podcasts are great for a bit of knowledge development so that you can start to privately and in your own time and space start to build your confidence and your knowledge base. Um, Facebook community groups are amazing because you can be relatively safe from your own space while you do a bit of research and work out who's who in the zoo and who's where in your area. Um, food co-ops seem to be an absolute hotspot for like-minded people who want to live a bit in a shared way and, um, you know, are aligned in their beliefs around food systems. Uh, community gardens are also that. I would say, though, you'll need to be willing to give a little bit of yourself. Even if you're super shy and super introverted, there will, there will be a need for you to give a little. And it might be a little of your time um, in a volunteer capacity. It might be... Um, a little of your energy in sitting on a committee or or you know it might also be a little bit of your convenience because some of these things aren't really as convenient as going to a supermarket and being anonymous and getting what you want okay. um so i you know online's a really good place to begin because it's free and it's accessible yeah. and it, it doesn't feel intimidating 
Yeah, beautiful. This has been so beautiful, Jade. I have a couple of quick questions, which I always love to ask everyone at the end of each episode. So you ready? I'm ready. So the first question is, what nourishes your soul right now? What are the practices that really bring you home to your body and to the earth at the moment? Uh, a daily sit spot is pretty key. Um, and, you know, that's the same place that I return to every day at different times of the day, at different across the different seasons. And I'm just observing all the little teeny tiny sounds and movements and life that's taking part right before me. I've changed my sit spot a couple of times in the last year and I've really settled into a new spot that feels really comfortable. If I can't get to that um, because I don't have even 10 minutes and I feel like I just need to, to be outside, I go outside, just go outside and take five big deep breaths and yeah. that lands me instantly. So that's pretty quick and pretty easy. But, yeah, a daily sit spot. Love that. If you could recommend one book that everyone should read on their journey of weaving the wild back into their lives, what would it be? Um, there are a lot. <laughs> but I, I think I think the one that transcends everybody's phase of where they're at in their path to re, rewilding and allows you it's really accessible because it's written in such a beautiful way would be braiding sweetgrass by robin kimra i think you've probably heard that lots and lots of times it's been recommended before yeah no doubt yeah. there is another one that i think i would love to give a shout out to and it's because it's a um a small print run um a, she, she published it she did a self-published that's with meg berryman i don't know if you've heard of meg but um, she wrote a book called Wilder, A Journey Back to Life. And it is really powerful, beautifully written. It's really peaceful, really calm. It's really accessible. You can pick it up at any page and, and, and reconnect. So it would be one of those two. Mm, I'll have to add that to the list. I feel like I might have heard of that, but I'll I'll have to add it now to the to the Booktopia <laughs> wish list. Um, and yeah, braiding sweet grass is literally. I think I I think I've said this another time when it was recommended on the show. But I just I remember when I I don't think I'd even finished reading it, but I was like, if if it, I could just get every single person in the world to read this, um, the world will be okay. Like everything. <laughs> be okay it's a beautiful book a beautiful book yeah and so the final question is how are you currently weaving your wild at the moment what are you doing or exploring or feeling called to kind of follow in your own rewilding journey right now yeah um my days are pretty wild they start very early and finish very late and there's everything from you know berry harvesting and pruning of patterns and or creation of uh, propagating of patterns and um, I'm just looking at all my goats that I milk every day <laughs> sitting out there and I've got free-ranging guinea pigs running around my feet so my days are pretty wild but there is definitely a next step that I need to take I'm contemplating doing um, a program with Claire Dunn who uh, is the nature's apprentice and part of that is a vision quest um, I've been sitting on it for a couple of years. I'm keen to do a vision quest. I haven't quite had the courage or the headspace to go there, but I think this is the year for it. I think it's time. Mm, amazing, incredible. 
Jade, is there anything before we we close now that you would love to just it's still on your heart or that you'd love to share or just kind of leave the listener with that they can take with them into their day as we close our conversation? Um, I think if there was one more thing, it would be, you know, we talked about lots of different things that people can and could do, but ultimately it comes down to the question, how much is enough? Mm. And the vast majority of us have got significantly more than enough for us to live rich, connected, healthy, vibrant lives. We have so much more than we need. But yet there are so many people who actually don't have enough. And as long as some of us have more than others, it it doesn't actually allow any of us to progress in a world that can permanently sustain itself and so I would say I would leave you with that question what does enough look like for you that's an incredibly powerful question I think especially to be feeling into in these particular waters and the climate of everything right here and right now so I really appreciate that and I'll certainly be taking that myself at the moment I think it has been so beautiful to speak with you this afternoon Jade thank you so much for coming on the show thank you my absolute pleasure thank you for listening to the Weaving the Wild podcast I'm walking my path beyond Jaja Wurrung country and I acknowledge the Jaja Wurrung elders past and present 